0: Welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey where we talk with people who are trying to live their most fulfilling life, which often tends to be on a much different path than it started out on. Whether it was changing careers, getting laid off from a job, which sparked their entrepreneurial journey, or breaking through the noise to answer their calling, all of these types of situations and more, but they wouldn't have gotten to where they're at today if they didn't get started. We talk about the why and the how of these getting started moments and the lessons learned along the way. I'm grateful to have you listening in along on this episode, so let's get it started. On this week's episode, I welcome in Dave Menz, who is also known as the Laundromat Millionaire. He is a laundromat industry veteran and the owner of the Queen City Laundry Chain of Laundromats in Cincinnati, Ohio. His inspirational journey from poverty to becoming a millionaire has inspired many entrepreneurs to try and overcome their own obstacles while building wealth. Dave is the author of the book, Laundromat Millionaire, which is to be released on October 1st, and the host of the Laundromat Millionaire Business Podcast. I hope you all enjoy this wide-ranging conversation I had with Dave. So without further ado, please welcome Dave Menz. Dave, welcome to the podcast, man. Glad to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Brian. I appreciate it. Yeah, man, I'm always excited to meet new people. And, you know, we cross paths and and who knows if we would ever met if, you know, if it wasn't for the digital age. So uh, it's always good to to have these opportunities. And I thought your story was really unique because, um, again, it's different than, you know, other people, the businesses they start and stuff like that. So I'm kind of curious of how how this all came about. Uh, if you, If you can start off, though, let's go back because one of the things I was really intrigued about. And and this actually comes up a lot on the podcast about kind of upbringing and and bullying and and kind of getting um, you know maybe not around the best things in life sometimes as a, as younger. So you had mentioned, or at least what I researched was that a lot of limited kind of options you thought people thought you know you were you're gonna be limited you weren't gonna really do much in your life maybe you were you know said to you know maybe have peaked at a certain you know all these things that we're getting told as a kid these kind of self-limiting beliefs can you share a little bit about your upbringing and, and how those affected you in those early days and then we'll talk about overcoming those to become who you are today
1: yeah well, the first thing I want to say is I grew up in a in a, uh, a loving household with a mother and a father who loved me very much and loved each other very much. So I understand what a uh, significant advantage that is in life. <laughs> so I'm not here to cry, cry poor or anything like that. Um, I had a lot of things going for me. Um, that being said, I grew up in a very, very uh, rough area, a very poor area. Um, my parents were married in high school and had their first baby, which was my older the brother. And our family was pretty much always behind the eight ball, um, both Both sides of my family, grandparents uh, worked at the GM factories in Flint, Michigan, which is where I grew up. Uh, Very blue collar job. Both my grandparents uh, didn't, you know, didn't graduate from high school. Um, So there's just a lot of things going on in that. Um, But they were all good people who cared about me and loved me and wanted good things for me. Um, But I think they thought that they were giving me good, solid advice. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm kind of a dreamer. I'm kind of a visionary in a sense. And I've always... I've always looked at the world through a different lens, very curious. And as a kid, I I did and I was and I was very stubborn. Um, And I would look at the world and just say, well, if that person can do it and that person can do it, why can't I? Mm -hmm. Um, And they would give me the stereotypical, oh, you can be anything you want to be, you know, that kind of. But the reality is they didn't believe it Um, because I didn't grow up with any entrepreneurs, mentors. uh, No one in my family even knew anyone that owned a business. Um, When you grow up in poverty, the goal, the life's goal is just to get to the middle class. If you're just not poor, that's considered success, at least financially speaking. And so that was, you know, that's not who I am. That's not who I was born to be. Um, but that's what everyone in my socioeconomic social circle, um, that, that's just their. What it really boils down to is, I think you said it well, that was their self-limiting beliefs, mm-hmm. um, which I think a lot of times adults um, put on kids, you know, not, not intentionally. Um, and they did me. Uh, the reality is, Um, I wasn't the most competent kid in the world. Um, I wasn't good looking. I wasn't good at school. I didn't have a good memory, you know, all the things that make you supposedly be successful in life when you're little. Um, But the reality is I don't really even know why, because I didn't even have a lot of self-confidence. But one thing I've always known about myself is that if I decide to do something, anything, there's nothing in this planet that will stop me because I, you know, people, always say, Oh, what's your superpower? That's like the cliche thing to get to say nowadays. Right. My superpower is I won't quit. And I, you know, <laughs> both my parents, all four of my grandparents, they're insanely stubborn um, to a fault. And for, and I was a very tough kid to raise. I always say, I wouldn't want to raise me as a parent. Uh, but that being said, um, I, I guess I figured out somewhere along the way, how to channel that for good. And I did get in trouble as a kid because I wouldn't listen and I was disrespectful and all those things. Um, but that, that was kind of my upbringing in my childhood. And so, like I said, I don't don't want to cry like, you know, I was abused or anything like that. It was just that whenever I would state verbally my beliefs and my dreams of who I wanted to be and what I wanted to be, it was always, oh, okay, let's, let's come back to earth, get your cl- get your head out of the clouds. Um, you know, if you, if you go be an entrepreneur or a business owner, you're just going to end up bankrupt and... You know, they always quote, quote all these mis, misquoted statistics. Oh, 75% of entrepreneurs are bankrupt. And, you know, all these different things that they just read somewhere in a newspaper. And yeah. they didn't really know what they were talking about. The reality is when I was probably eight or nine years old, I figured out they really don't have any idea what they're talking about. And so I love them and I respected them. I just didn't believe them. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it, it. it is so
0: interesting. And they were really because my parents are the same is. You think they're just making those, um, I, could, I guess you could say choices, but giving you that information because they want you to be safe. They feel like hey, if I put the if I put the bubble wrap of the safety yep. net, um, you know, they're going to do well. And the reality is, yeah, we're, I mean, and you and I are probably similar. I pro- I didn't grow up in that. I, I probably grew up more middle class. But the reality is, there's millions and maybe a billions people that are had it way worse than I did as, as a kid. Having said that, though. Being in the status quo and living up in the status quo and not seeing your full potential, that's a a detriment to the world, right? Because if you have a lot of things you can share and make, you know, as I always say, positive impact, then you should do that. So obviously, and you've done that, and we'll get into some of that stuff. But you mentioned that kind of mindset shift at an earlier age, like, even with all that stuff around you and the area you live, like, how did you get out, though? Like, how did you, it's one thing to, to say, Hey, I'm going to do it different or I'm going to, you know, you're stubborn, but like, how did you actually get out? Because most folks, as we know, they stay in that and they're yeah. kicking themselves, but they kind of go in a lot of folks maybe went and worked for GM or in the factory, you know, like, and they just stayed there. So how did you decide ultimately to make that, that
1: choice to get out? Well, I think I have to give, um, at least a portion of the credit to my dad who's a lot like me, uh, very stubborn, very fiercely independent, uh, very driven, just not an entrepreneur. Um, and so he fought basically his entire life to dig our family out from behind the eight ball financially, uh, from poverty to more of a lower middle-class lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Um, so when I was a teenager, we were probably more lower middle-class than really, uh, poverty stricken, if you will, which is how we were when I was, you know, a young kid in single digits elementary school. Um, and so, I, you know, I, I have to give credit where credit is due that my dad was a portion of that uh, because he recognized Flint was always a rough area and it's all we knew. But when his kids got to be, I was the middle kid. And so I was when I was 10, um, he kind of recognized that Flint wasn't a great place for his kids to be. I'm sure he recognized that me and my brother, who was two years older, already had some negative influences on us. Um, and I think he, he took it very seriously that he needed to get his family out of Flint. Um, so that being said, that's where we moved to Cincinnati, which is where I now live and have lived for 35 years. Um, so physically getting out of Flint and out of that situation, uh, I have to, I have to credit my dad with a big portion of that. But the reality is I have a pretty large family on my mom's side of the family and a medium sized family on my dad's side. And the reality is they all still very, very much good people. Uh, but they all still very much had this like poor scarcity mindset. And so that is something that I really credit myself with uh, digging myself out of, because to this day, pretty much everyone in my family, not my immediate family, but uh, everyone in my family, grandparents, aunts, uncles, those type of things are good middle class people, but they still have this scarcity mindset where fear controls everything they do. Mm -hmm. And they're just, you know, in the rat race, trying to survive another day and make another car payment. Um, And somewhere, I think it's honestly a passion, my passion for reading. Uh, You and I were talking, you know, before we got started about our podcast, loving to listen to, you know, information and content like this. I've always been very big on uh, just consuming knowledge, consuming information from people that I respect. Um, And so whether it's a book by somebody who's famous or even not famous, that really just uh, causes me to think a different way than anyone I've ever known in life. I always joke that I estimate I've had roughly 10,000 mentors in my life. And 9,999 of them have never met me and never heard of my name. Yeah. <laughs> so if I've read your book or listened to your podcast, uh, that you're a mentor of mine, in some big or small way. And so I always was driven towards the business and entrepreneurial world, the information, the books, the podcasts, the magazines, whatever you want to call it, associated with that. When you consume enough of that information, um, it really changes your mindset. And when you already kind of were leaning that way a little bit, and you're kind of looking for that validation that, that, that isn't a pipe dream, it's not reality, it's not a fast track to bankruptcy. Um, and you, you feel like you get to know people, um, who, who, who can tell you that you're not crazy. (laughs) Um, and that this is a real way of living your life and that you can escape the rat race and find financial freedom and all the things associated with that. Um, then, you know, I think it builds a certain level of confidence of, uh, I remember being probably in my early 20s, and I remember just one day, go, I, I read uh, The Millionaire Next Door. I don't know if you've read that book. I haven't. No. Uh, but it's uh, it's not really a business book, but it more talks about how, you know, there's so many millionaires in the world. Most of them don't look like the stereotypical millionaire. They're not driving a Ferrari or Corv- Corvette around. Mm-hmm. They're driving a three-year-old Buick, and uh, most of them own small businesses that are not sexy industries, like a sanitation business or something like that. And they're just not the stereotypical Hollywood version of a millionaire. Um, And they just talked about how they're so common. They typically drive Buicks. They don't usually drive luxury vehicles and all the things associated with that. that
0: Well, I remember the, you know, it's so funny if I interject. So I used to be in the golf industry and I used to be a PJ professional and, and teach golf for a living. But in my internships in college, so every summer, you know, everyone's off popping off doing whatever during summer, during college, I was on an internship. I'd work at different golf courses around the country okay. and I worked at 3 of the 4 years I worked at private golf clubs and actually to what you just said was actually actually so accurate there were certainly the you know the the porsches and the you know the, the those type of cars that people were driving around and they had all the nice equipment but the majority of people were driving an av- what you would consider like an average car Like they weren't, they didn't have everything great, but they were so structured in what they did and how they spent money and how they lived that ultimately, that's what led them to to get to kind of a more financial freedom. So, anyway, sorry, go ahead there. I thought that was a no.
1: That was no. You're fine. Said that, yeah. I've had these conversations hundreds, if not thousands, of times, and the reality is that's the real world. So it's not it's not the world that my family and friends thought that being a millionaire or being uh, financially free or being an entrepreneur was, they were just all looking at the negative. And Mm -hmm. what I learned pretty early on in my adulthood through all of my studies is that a lot of times the difference in successful entrepreneurs and business people and people that a lot of times get stuck in the middle class and the rat race, a lot of times it's just fear. And the reality is we all have fear. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of whether we let it control us or whether we fight back and say, no, you, you don't get to have a say in this. I'm going to go live my life. I'm going to go do my thing um, despite my fear. Um, it's not, you know, I said people say, oh, entrepreneurs are fearless. No, uh, no, no, no. We all have fear. It's just a matter of whether we let it control our lives or we go ahead and do what we're going to do despite that fear. And I think that was a real eye-opening moment for me in my in my journey um, that kind of gave me some validation. And quite honestly, I think it gave me a lot of uh, confidence to go chase my dreams, you know, I think you mentioned something a
0: bit earlier, I'll underscore was, um, and really around curiosity, you know, when you do read a lot of books, and listen to podcasts or consume whatever other content, it just gets you thinking, it's it's almost like going to, uh, and like, I'm sure when you, you know, when you move from Flint, right, to Cincinnati, there was like an eye opening, like, whoa, this is different. You know, it's the same thing. Like when I'm from upstate New York and I went to college down in North Carolina, huge difference in terms of just environment area, but it's the same thing. You know, when you read is like, you start questioning, like, wait a minute, all the things I thought I was in this bubble actually, are those actually true? And I, and I don't know if you agree with this or not, but like that ultimately I think gets you out, you know, quote unquote, the comfort zone. Like you start getting a little uncomfortable of like, wait a minute, did I, do I have all the right answers? And as I always like to say, you know the the more I know, the you know, or the more I learn, the less I know, because it's <laughs> right. like you know you you just keep consuming stuff, but it's like opens up new doors that you never mm-hmm. consider. But I, I don't know if you have any additional
1: thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I was always a very curious kid, and I still am to this day. Um, I want to know what I don't know, and I consider myself a pretty educated man at this point in my life. But the reality is, I'm also very aware that none of us know what we don't know. It's the old cliche we don't know what we don't know, right? right. Um, and so I'm always I was curious as a kid and I think it drove, you know all two and three year old kids ask why, 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 why. The difference is usually about four or five we kind of stop at least quite so obsessively. I'm still like that at forty five years old. I still yeah. want to know why. Uh, the difference is I don't go ask my parents. I just I'm digging, I'm reading, I'm researching. and obviously growing up in an era where we had the internet, um, and it's each it's evolved and matured and um, into podcasting and all the things, the tools and resources mm-hmm. that we have now. Um, I'm just living in a perfect time for my brain and how I'm wired yeah. because I, that information is out there. I just have to go find it. And a lot of times you have to consume and waste a lot of time. And I call it I call it investing time. Um, right. But you have to, you know, consume information and go, OK, that that sucked. That was terrible <laughs> um, to get to the good stuff. But when you find the good stuff, it'll change your life. Absolutely. What
0: did uh, what so what happened? Did you always want to go the business ownership route? Or did that just come in your mind, you know, later on down the line? How, how did you get to business ownership?
1: Yeah, so uh, at my kindergarten graduation, when they ask all the kids what they want to be when they grow up, um, you know, kids say I want to be a professional athlete and all these, you know, I want to be a race car driver, or whatever. I said, I want to know my own business. And the interesting thing is I didn't know anyone that owned a business. It wasn't like I was trying to be like my uncle or my dad. I didn't know anyone that was an entrepreneur or a business owner. Mm. Um, I've just, from the day I was born, I've been fascinated by the idea. Um, I think it, once again, it comes from poverty, middle-class mentality where you got to work. You got to trade your time for money. You work eight hours. Whatever you make an hour is multiplied by an hour. And you get eight of those in a day. And Mm -hmm. one of the things I've always hated in in life and this mentality that the middle-class has um, is I've always really despised the fact that that put limitations on me. I don't like, I I have a, I always say I'm a control freak, but not in the, not in the uh, traditional sense, not that I want to control other people, but that I hate being controlled and not just by people, but by life, by the world. I hate limitations. I don't like ceilings. I like to think that I can always find a different level Um, And as a little kid, I was told that that was crazy. And as an adult, when you interact with the right people, you realize that there really are no ceilings to life. Um, You're only limited by your own effort, your own education, Mm -hmm. your own ability to go out there and, uh, and kill it and bring it home, whatever it is, uh, whatever you want to do with your life. And then I think the last kind of epiphany that I had with this is uh, probably 10 or 15 years ago, right, as I got into business for myself. I was doing a lot of research on end of life and I don't know why I just got curious about it. And I started doing a lot of reading and research about it. And one of the things that I read is that meet people at the end of life typically, um, aren't, how do I put this? They aren't, um, they don't have regrets by the things that they've tried and failed at, at the end of their life. But what their, what their most pure regrets are is the things that they always wanted to do and never tried. Right. And that was a kind of a light bulb moment for me because I was like, you know, I was already going to live my life. Um, but that just caused me to go, you know what? I'm, I'm running at death 150 miles an hour. And I don't know if I'll wake up tomorrow or if I'll live another 45 years, uh, but I'm just going to live my life and chase my dreams. And being a to get back to your question, being a business owner and an entrepreneur, I don't I don't know if you're born that way. I don't know how that works exactly. All I know is that it's always been on my mind and on my heart. I've also, but I think I've always been fascinated by the idea idea that not even so much money, but by the things that I can accomplish in this world, the legacy that I can leave Mm -hmm. has no limitations in the entrepreneurial world. There really aren't too many other places in the world where you can leave your mark on the world, even if you're not good at school, even if you're not the most athletic, even if you're not the best looking, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's like the entrepreneurial world, I guess, because of, you know, pure capitalism, Um, It's like the entrepreneurial world is just like a free for all. And it's only about one thing. It's about results. And, and everybody can tell you why you can't get results. But if you can go out there and get them, then they can't argue with those results. And I just loved that uh, barometer to my life.
0: Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you're you're putting the chips in that you want to put in, right? I mean, if I can use that reference, like yep. it's you're you're almost cre- you know, creating the hand. Now it doesn't always work out as we know, right? Yep. Sometimes, you know, you fail, but it's the tweaking, it's the the kind of meandering down a different path and figuring it out and then going from there. And I, I think I I love that point, by the way, is like we're we know we're gonna die. I mean, I don't know why some people don't like to talk about. It. We know we're gonna, we don't know when, right? the uncertainty. But it's like, yeah, why would I want to get to that point and have all these regrets of not trying and not, you know, it's almost like eh, I could do it. But let's just go the safe route. I don't know. I, I, I agree with you for the longest time. I felt like that, like, nope, just plot your way along. And then a handful of years
1: ago, I'm like, screw this. What that what am I doing? You know, Yeah, well, I think it's one of those it. things. Once we get, yeah, exactly. Once we get, you know, I don't know if older or more mature is the right way to put it. But for me, as I've aged and matured at least a little bit in life, um, I've realized that every day is a blessing. You know, I've been through a lot of tragedy in my life. um, And I, I think that makes you look at life through a different lens, makes you appreciate it more. But also, um, you know, I always joked, I I had a little sister that when she was nine years old, I was 14. She got brain cancer. And when she was 14 and I was 19, she passed away. So I watched her struggle and suffer, and basically she was terminal for five years. And I watched her fight and struggle and stress basically during my most formative years, from 14 to 19, I was how old I was, when our family went through this. Um, and it was a really tough time, obviously, for her, but for our whole family, financially, emotionally, faith-wise. I mean, it was it was brutal. And, you know, I remember that those teenage years, I always say that innocence was kind of lost on me. You know how teenagers think they're invincible? I've never thought I was invincible because I just looked at my little sister and I was Mm -hmm. like, no, I'm not invincible. But the reality is that out of all tragedies, there are always positive things that come out of those tragedies. Um, And one of those from my sister's eventual passing, uh, one of those positive things that came out of that is it burned something into me that caused me to appreciate and cherish uh, life. And um, the, the fact that we're even born in the United States, which yep. gives us an awful lot of freedoms and, um, you know, t- cherishing relationships with other people and knowing that they may not be here tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times we start to figure those things out when we're in our 60s or 70s and all of our friends and family kind of start passing away or even 80s and 90s a lot of times. Um, I figured that out really early. And I think it's always caused me to, I don't know if maturity is the right word, but it's always caused me to look at life through a little bit different lens and appreciate a little bit more. I think that's also why I just wasn't willing to let fear paralyze me. And the reality is I've been bankrupt. So, I mean, <laughs> I failed, you know, I've tried some things that didn't work and failed and I've been divorced and, uh, you know, I mean, I've i have been a single dad. So I've, there's a lot, you know, I lost my older brother who struggled with my sister's death and ended up going through a lot of tragedy of his own and struggling with drug addiction. I mean, I lost my younger sister and my older brother. Um, and so it's it's just one of those things that make you look at life through a different lens. Yeah. And by the time you take all those things and then the mentality of this uh, fiercely independent, passionate, stubborn person who loves business ownership and everything that it is, when you kind of bring all that stuff full circle, it just really turned Dave Menz into who Dave Menz is. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's... I
0: can't even imagine going through that dude. So, um, I mean, I guess, yeah, the perspective
1: it gives you on life is immense for sure. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not glad that it happened, but I'm a firm believer that, you know, everything happens for a reason and there are many, many reasons usually that different things happen. And I'm always the type of person that tries to take anything good or bad in life and learn from it. Mm -hmm. Like, well, I lost my sister. I can't change that. Or I lost my brother. I can't change that. But what I can do is look for the blessings, look for the knowledge, look for that education. I think it maybe somewhat comes back to that curiosity too. Okay, there has to be something to learn from this. This can't be for nothing. Um, And when you pull those things out, a lot of times they're pretty formative. Like they really will, they'll rock your world. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Well, so you're known as the laundromat
0: millionaire. Yeah. When did you decide that laundromats were like, the avenue, what were things did things before that not work out? Or did that happen to be the first endeavor? Share a little bit about that, that journey there?
1: Yeah, I, um, you know, when I was 19 years old, I, we we were pretty, like I said, lower middle class, I couldn't afford to go to college, didn't feel comfortable borrowing the money. Um, And so I just took an entry level position in corporate America, um, at the local telephone company here in Cincinnati. And I worked there for uh, 17 years before I left to pursue business ownership full time. During that time, I was promoted five times. I learned a lot of great skills, got a lot of education. They did a lot of internal training and things like that that were very valuable to me as an entrepreneur and a business owner. I always say things I was learning during my corporate career that I didn't even realize I was learning mm-hmm. um, that would translate into the business world. And uh, the reality is that I, I always say, well, temporarily, I kind of sold out, meaning I gave up on my dreams. I, I got that white picket fence. I ended, ended up eventually getting married. Uh, being very happy, having, you know, three kids and uh, the whole nine yards. And when I was in my early 30s, I guess in my late 20s, I realized one day that like, once again, I wasn't chasing my dream. What what am I doing here? Um, And so I decided to kind of reboot, had a conversation with my wife. She knew that I always wanted my own business. Uh, When I was younger, I tried a lot of businesses that failed, uh, but they were always like smaller businesses, like, you know, vending machines and cutting lawns and landscaping and those types of things, you know, newspaper route, whatever you want to call it. Um, And uh, I tried a vending business and I borrowed a bunch of money, bought a bunch of vending machines um, on a credit card and basically maxed myself out. They didn't make anywhere near the money I thought they would make. And I went bankrupt. This is before I married my current wife. Um, And essentially what happened is, After my bankruptcy, I realized I didn't have anything left to lose, that I was kind of the bottom of the barrel as far as an adult financially. Mm. And so I was like, well, I'm 28 years old. Why can't I just reboot? Nothing says I have to do this job for the next 30 years. And so I decided to, you know, me and my wife sat down and had a very serious conversation. She knew that this was something I was passionate about, and she's a big believer in us as adults chasing our dreams. So she supported me. And for the next four or five years, we lived well below our means and saved up quite a bit of seed money. Uh, to buy a business. And I didn't really know what kind of business it would be and didn't really care. I just wanted to pursue business. You talked about loving golf. Golf is a game. Business is a game to me. Yeah. It's a way of channeling uh, that competitive nature that I have. Right. Um, and it's something that I love doing. And long story short, we ended up saving up for four or five years. We found a local laundromat a couple miles from our house. And uh, it was a rundown dump. And uh, I knew the community really well. I lived there for over 20 years at that point. And I said, man, I think I think if I bought this and turned it around, and you know treated people the right way, and had some customer service, and fixed it up, and painted the walls, and put TVs in, just fundamental basic things about running a business, in my mind, um, that I could you know I could make money and serve the community, which are two things that are important to me. And so we we took the plunge. We bought this local business that was losing money when we bought it. Uh, we maxed out our our uh, credit lines, our savings. We tapped them out. Uh, borrowed money on an SBA loan. And uh, within six or eight months, the business was making money, put a lot of sweat equity into it, worked a lot of hours. But the main reason I pursued it is, one, it was a couple miles from my home. One, it was kind of a rundown dump, which meant I could buy it pretty inexpensively. Um, And the other reason was because the laundromat industry is known as kind of being like a side hustle, kind of a passive business, if you will. Mm. And it's certainly not as passive as it's made out to be, but I was attracted to that business because I knew whatever business I bought I wouldn't be able to leave my full-time job right away. I would still need to keep that to support my family. And so I stayed at my full-time job for the next five years um, and basically worked anywhere from 90 to a hundred hours a week between my full-time job and businesses, trying to fix them up and make them nicer. We reinvested everything the first business made. After about a year, bought a second one, took the profits from the first, rolled them into the second, which was also a rundown dump, Mm. fixed it up, made it profitable. And then I kind of caught the bug. And I was like, well, man, if I get a couple more of these, like I, I could quit my job and make a living. And at that point I thought that was once again, kind of my ceiling financially. Well, if I could just quit my job and be self-employed, um, then that would be a dream life for me. Cause I would be free from the man, right. From corporate yeah. America. And, uh, and it, it just took on a life of its own one turned into two and I now have five laundromats. We have a pretty robust laundry pickup and delivery business, um, here in Cincinnati. And, uh, we just took old rundown dumps, you know, eyesores in the communities that weren't weren't serving the community very well. And we just treated the community and the the people the way that we believed that was the right way to treat them. Um, but it was a significant investment. We lived well below our means for probably close to 10 years and never really took any money out of the business. Just kept every penny it made, we just plow it back into making it. Mm-hmm. I always said, I gotta get my business to the next level, to the next level, to the next level. After seven or eight years of doing that, we woke up one day and we're like, Wow, we've built (laughs) we built pretty substantial wealth without really even uh I mean it was intentional, but we didn't, we weren't really paying attention to our net worth. Um, we were just looking at cash flow and things like that, trying to serve the community. And uh I just kind of I always say I caught the bug after about year two or year one. I just fell in love with the industry. Um, now I'm kind of becoming famous for saying that the laundromat business is the best small business in America. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm a living, breathing example of someone that kind of started with really nothing. Um, we didn't, our net worth was less than, less than $50,000, um, as a family of five (laughs) when we first got into business for ourselves. And, you know, we, we believe that everything we do in life should be based on servitude. That should be the starting point is how are we impacting the world? How are we serving others? And so that was a part of it too, is, you know, one of the reasons that I believe it's the best small business in America is because it's a vital community resource. It's a hygiene product. I mean, we were deemed essential during COVID no laundromat in the world closed um, when a lot of other businesses and economies were completely shutting down. And the reason for that is every re, every uh, community needs not wants needs a modernized laundromat. Um, and so we were deemed essential and stayed open. So far from a financial economic standpoint, what a great business to own, but one that whether times are good, times are bad, COVID, no COVID, um, you're always going to be needed. You know, I always said, I don't want to be that 12th pizza place. Um, where if you go out of business, there's 11 other pizza places, you know, I want to be a vital community resource. That was the kind of business I wanted to get into. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's kind of a long winded answer to your question. Well, it's interesting. No, 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 don't ever apologize for talking. (laughs) This, This
0: podcast is for, um, the, uh, Getting into that first bit, like, was was it for sale, or did you just approach the owners and kind of saw, like, this is a little rundown? Maybe I can make
1: a, maybe I can just offer a certain amount. How how did that first one get into your hands? Yeah, the first one was for sale. The other four that I've acquired, none of them were, quote unquote, for sale. Uh, But the first one I actually stumbled upon on Craigslist, believe it or not. This is back 12 years ago now. Uh, The internet was a little bit uh, less mature than it is nowadays, but it existed. And I would just scroll for hours and hours and hours looking for businesses for sale. I was looking for small businesses because we didn't have a lot of seed capital. Yeah. Um, we had like maybe $30,000 to invest in a business and we knew we'd need to borrow some money. Um, <clears throat> and I just found this place and it just happened to be a couple miles from my house. I knew exactly where it was. I'd lived in that area for 20 years. Um, I knew that this, you know, I didn't know anything about the laundromat business, but I knew that that laundromat used to be a hopping place. And I knew that it was pathetic. Like it was really sad. The condition it was in, uh, the fact that it wasn't serving the community, most of the machines were out of order. There were people doing drugs in the open. There were people selling drugs in the open. It was a very rough place. Um, And it was losing money when I bought it. (laughs) So, you know, if you know much about business, you know that doesn't exactly sound like a great opportunity. But the one of the things I've always understood is servitude and the laws of supply and demand. Um, And so what I did is I spent For that first store, I ended up spending probably uh, six to eight weeks um, just researching the industry and researching all of the competitors, doing what's now called a competitive analysis, even though I didn't know that's what I was doing. And I was just looking at them, and I was like, well, how are they serving this market, this this county, let's say? Mm -hmm. And there was nine laundromats within a 20-mile radius of this one I was looking at buying, and every one of them were complete dumps. A few of them were a little bit nicer than this but none of them were properly serving the, the, com- the, the county, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just looked at that and I said, well, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but there's a lot of people in this county and they need to do laundry. And if no one's serving this market well, if I take over this place and I fix it up and I only know how to do things one way and it's, it's the best way possible. Right. And I knew I would learn and research and network and, and learn all the art that is running a laundromat. And so I knew as I learned those things, I would just reinvest the money in the business and so that's how I acquired the first one was I just stumbled upon it on Craigslist. And I was like, hey, I know where that is. It just happened to be a few miles from my house. I looked at the competitors and was like, seems to make all the sense in the world to me. And so I just jumped. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, number two, three, and four. I, I learned a little bit more about the industry after that, of course. Um, you know, by by necessity, of course. And uh, two, three, and four, all of them were off-market deals, as the real estate people call it. Um, and those were more of, I started to learn the the industry and the business a little bit. Um, once again, looked at the laws of supply and demand, and I would find local laundromats that were either completely closed, which was my second one. Um, and I just looked at the value in the infrastructure. You know, the laundromat industry is, in a lot of ways, you're just reselling utilities. I mean, it's a service business, but the infrastructure of the size of the water lines, the gas lines, the drain lines that you need for a laundromat environment If they're in a facility, a strip mall, a standalone building, whatever, there's a lot of value in that, even if it's older infrastructure. And so I found an—I knew I I didn't have any money because I put everything in my first store. Mm -hmm. So I found an old, rundown, dumpy laundromat that was actually closed to the public Um, and it went out of business. And I—it was in a small strip mall, and I just contacted the strip mall owner and said, you know, hey, I'm in the industry. I own this laundromat over in Amelia. This was about 20 minutes from my home, and uh, I said, you know, I'd—I'd be interested in taking over the lease for this space. Uh, fixing it up and what I call modernizing it and turning it into a modern day laundromat where it was in really really bad shape yeah. well they had figured out that they kind of had an albatross on their hands I mean to un to unlaundromat laundromat that space and make it a white box space that would be rentable for any retail business would be a lot of work and a lot of money for them and they had figured that out and so I basically took over the place for free they gave me the keys I went in there took over and yeah. uh You know, most of the equipment we scrapped a little bit, we made some use out of, I borrowed a whole bunch of money, uh, put a lot of new equipment in there. And once again, just put an insane amount of hours and sweat equity into that business to get it up and running. And uh, obviously, over the next couple of years, I had two viable, profitable laundromats. And then I really started to learn the industry uh, well at that point. And then I acquired two two stores that were open, but were also run down. Um, And actually three now, I just closed on my fifth one uh, a few weeks ago. And all of them were in great locations, um, run down dumpy messes that weren't serving the community properly. And I said, well, the infrastructure's here, the location is great. Everything else, it seems like I could probably fix. And so that's how I got into the business. And to be honest with you, most business opportunities, especially anything that's more turnkey, um, is you know gonna be pretty valuable asset. And so to have 30 grand and borrow another 70 grand, you're not gonna be able to buy much for that Uh, in the business world. Um, So that was really the one of the reasons I got in the laundromat industry was I just was out of necessity. I was like, well, I got to work a lot of hours. I got to keep my full time job. This is a few miles from my home. Um, It just seems like it checks all the boxes, I can do it on the side, even if it's just temporary. Um, And so once again, I just took the leap. But what you're saying too,
0: is and maybe, I guess some advice, if I'm pulling that back, is instead of like, going in and saying, Hey, I'm going to start a laundromat and then having to find the location and having to buy all the equipment, all that stuff, having, buying a business that's maybe going under or going, or maybe it's not being properly run. You at least have that infrastructure as you're saying, a lot of that overhead that you'd have to pay for, you didn't have to, cause it was already there. So it was a better opportunity for you, even though you're buying it for a
1: certain amount, you got a lot of value with that purchase. Right. A lot, absolutely. Now, you know, there's a few a few uh, caveats, if you will. One of them is it has to be in a great location. I mean, there's a lot of laundromats that were built back in the 60s, 70s, and even 80s that weren't in great locations. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, communities change. What is a good location, and what used to be a good location? So you can't just take over any old dumpy laundromat and fix it up and make it nice and make a bunch of money. That's not really what I'm here to to preach. Uh, but it's predicated on having a great location. Uh, having a great long-term lease because once again, when you fix it up, uh, you can't move it. <laughs> you know, you don't really have any leverage with your landlord. Uh, if you could buy the property, that's great, which we've done a couple times. Um, and then the parking. Parking is a uh, is a vital resource or a vital need for a laundromat because when people come to a laundromat, they're typically there two or three hours. They don't just pull in, grab a pizza, and leave. They pull in and they're there. They camp out for two or three hours at a minimum usually. And so you got to have a substantial amount of parking. So what I tell people, because I do coaching for people looking to get in the laundromat business and things like that now, um, what I tell people is those are the three things you're looking for. If you can find an old rundown laundromat that has the proper square footage, depending on what your needs are and what you're looking to build, and you can find the, you know, it has the proper parking, it has the infrastructure already in place, and it's in either a good or a great location um, strategically, there's easily six figures in value there, Um, easily, sometimes multiple six figures in value. Um, you know, you can pop up an old tile floor and put a new floor down. You can, for the most part, the equipment um, in our industry is very expensive, uh, but you can leverage it. All the manufacturers of commercial laundry equipment have their own financing arms. And if you can show them the demographics and the location of it's currently this, here's the numbers, this is what I'm going to do. And they know you're borrowing, let's say $200,000 to buy this equipment. Well, they realize that equipment is probably for the most part, but I'm going to pay itself uh, pay for itself. Um, and the manufacturers, you know, the lending arms, they know that they know the industry and they know how that works. Um, so those are really the kind of caveats to it. But yeah, short of that, there's an insane amount of value in an existing laundromat. Mm.
0: Anything else just from even away from laundromat, just from a business standpoint, maybe something you didn't know a handful of years ago, and you know, now it's like, oh, my gosh, like I got I got to make sure I always use this, you know, to, to or check this box every time I'm looking
1: at a new business opportunity, anything else you'd share? Well something that's always kind of come naturally to me because I'm a Christian, I was raised with my, my faith is very important to me and my families. Um, so it was very natural and it was ingrained in me. but what I tell people is even if you even if altruism isn't important to you, the reality is you want to look for an opportunity to serve uh, because that's really honestly what pure capitalism is all, is all based on is you know who is providing a better value proposition to the market. And then the laws of supply and demand, the consumers will tell you who wins. <laughs> they'll, they'll talk with their, you know, they'll, they'll do their talking with their feet and with their dollars. Um, so what I tell people is just look for an opportunity in any industry, in any market, no matter what it is, to just serve others. Look for an opportunity where there's an, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty commonly said nowadays with all the podcasting and everything going on. Uh, but us entrepreneurs, ultimately what we are, we're problem solvers. Look for a problem in society, solve the problem. Uh, treat people the right way, serve them the right way, and the reality is, you know, none of that's exactly rocket science, and I understand that. But the reality is, there's a lot of people out there that if they would just take a step back, take a deep breath, and do those things, the money will follow. But way too many people are just focused on the money, 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 mm-hmm. and they a lot of times lose fact, lose sight of the fact that if they just focus on us, you know, humanity taking care of and serving each other and meeting needs. Bettering the world, uh, the money will almost always follow when you do that. Yeah. And so, those are things that came somewhat naturally to me because of my upbringing and it's just who I was raised to be. Yeah. And so, when I got into business for myself, I was just like, "Well, I don't, I don't want to own a business that you know is a is a luxury. I want to own a business that it's a necessity. I want to really impact people's lives." And so, I went down that path, and then I realized, "Wow, like my upbringing, while it it brought me a lot of negatives and a lot of baggage, so to speak." Uh, the, wow, the reality is there were a lot of core fundamentals that I was raised with that actually are an intricate part of of me making being successful. So I tell people whether you have the same values and faith that I do or whatever, it's still just a smart business move, even if you're only doing it for selfish reasons, um, and it's still going to make the world a better place.
0: Yeah what uh, what was the reasoning behind writing a book? You had mm-hmm. these businesses. You're running those. like, yeah. Why? Why a book? Tell me.
1: Tell me a little about that journey. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, I have a book coming out in a couple months in October 2021 called Laundromat Millionaire. Um, which by the way, I'm not that brash. That's a nickname that was given to me by someone. And I just decided to embrace it. Everybody's like, wow, you're really arrogant. <laughs> uh, someone kind of coined me that that name. And I was like, hey, I could take that run with it. I understand what marketing work looks like. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I wrote this book, uh, mainly for two reasons. It's actually been a labor of love. Um, I am just now finishing the book, the manuscript's finished, it's finishing editing right now. And uh, the reality is that seven years ago, believe it or not, I had it on my heart to write a book about my life story that didn't really even have a whole lot to do with my business journey. Mm-hmm. It was more about some of the other things I talked about my right. upbringing, my tragedy that my family's been through in life, and things like that. I've lost a child, um, which is, is a tough thing to, to deal with wow. and live with in life. I've just, and I, so I just felt it was on my heart to write this story and share it with the world. And so my wife encouraged me to do it. I knew that it didn't have anything to do with business. So fast forward to where we are today. This book is actually um, manifested itself. I've probably rewritten the book seven or eight times. And it started as just kind of my life story of tragedy and poverty. And it's evolved from, okay, that's not really the story. That's the beginning of the story. So the first couple of chapters just kind of my backstory and my foundation of my upbringing, mm-hmm. which leads to my business journey and who I am to my core and how servitude and eventually those those values and beliefs made me a millionaire. Um, and I'm living my dream life. You know, I'm, I'm doing whatever I want, whenever I want. I have a team of about 40 people um, that work for us now. And so you know, there's a big difference in being self-employed and being a business owner. Um, there was a time where I was self-employed and now I'm a business owner. And so I can get up every day and do whatever I want to do. And my businesses are assets that serve the community. Um, and it, it's just interesting to see it come full circle over all those years and have rewritten the manuscript so many times. And once again, I'm all about giving back. And really the last uh, last portion to that I'll say is um, I've always been really big about giving back and you know, the old cliche paying it forward, right? I'm really big about that. Um, and so I've realized not only do I have a story to tell, but I have something like I have the adversity that I've overcome, the poverty that I was stricken with early in life, the tragedies. Um, but then there's the the other side of the equation is all the life lessons all those things that they taught me, how strong they made me um, how they they molded me into the person I am now uh, but I had to let those things happen to me. I had to choose to to be, Uh, inquisitive, to be curious, to go try to learn from tragedy, and how those made me who I am. And they made me a phenomenal business person because they molded my heart um, into, I believe, who God wanted me to be. Um, And so now it's really just about telling that story, telling that journey. And then the last little piece of it is the laundromat industry is a very misunderstood industry. Um, Whenever you say the word laundromat to anyone in the world, there's always a negative connotation associated with it. Mm -hmm. And that's unfortunately well-deserved. Our 75% of the laundromats in the in the United States are very poorly run. Um, and they, they have a negative connotation because they're not run properly. Um, but I'm very passionate about our industry. I'm very uh, grateful for our industry. Um, the opportunity that's given me to, to, you know, not only at this point change my life, but actually change my family tree. Um, and so I really am to the point now where I'm very passionate about all of these things. And I really want to just, you know, I always tell my wife, I want to just kind of shout it from the mountaintops, that this is one of the best opportunities in America, uh, business opportunities, and you get to serve people at the same time. So by the time you take all these things full circle, um, it it was something that was very passionate about, I just, I felt like, I guess it took me seven years to tell the story. Um, And now it's become this, it's much more, I mean, it's, I think the books, uh, I have to look, 16 chapters, I think the first two or three are kind of, a brief backstory of my childhood. And the rest of it is a lot of my business journey, my tragedy. Uh, But 90, well, 80% of it is my business journey from when I bought that first laundromat. And then it goes into the more of the nuts and bolts of how I actually got into the industry, the things that I learned, the lessons that I learned, how I learned them, and then how I applied them, you know, delayed gratification and how impactful that can be. Compounding networking, compounding education, all these things that snowball, you know, in the finance world, we all talk about compounding interest and, you know, associated with stock investments and mortgages and all these things. But the reality is there's many other things that compound in life. Uh, leverage just isn't about borrowing money and putting it to work for you. Uh, you can leverage other people's skill sets. You know, business is a team game. Um, so that's really where the business, the book comes from. So it's kind of a big, big question, <laughs> Yeah, that's <laughs> or big, great. No, big, answer, big answer, I, I should say. Well, no, it's um, exciting. Um, yeah. you know, I just, uh, you know, obviously this above my
0: shoulder, right. Is my first children's yes. book that launched earlier this year and I have my second one coming out. And so just congratulations, the, thank you. But just the yes. writing process, I understand cause I'm writing yes. some other books as well. It's an intense process. It is. Um, but I think, mo- I think there's a lot of people that should do it. And I think a lot of people have a story just like yours it has to be told. Um, so just going through it and sometimes it takes many
1: years, you know, you just got to grind. And uh, if you feel that it should be put out in the world, you know. Yeah, well, I've always had the 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 attitude once I realized I did have a story in me to tell, I was like, you know what, I'm not under any illusion, I'm going to be a New York Times bestseller, or I'm gonna actually make any money off this book, because I've just spent thousands and thousands and thousands of hours on this book. Uh, but the reality is, like, if I I really genuinely believe this at my core, I write this book, I put it out into the world, um, if it impacts 50 people, if you put me in a room with 50 people and told me that that book tremendously impacted their life, that would seem like a lot of people's lives that I impacted. Yeah. But for some reason, we think that when we write a book or have a podcast or, or what, you know, promote a magazine or whatever we do in life, we think that we have to do it in the millions, And that's really not how we impact the world. We just impact the world one conversation at a time. Mm -hmm. And so if it only makes it to 50 or 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 people's hands, that's still a lot of people um, that hopefully I'm impacting. And a big part of paying it forward is I'm grateful for my industry, but I'm also grateful for all those, you know, I mentioned a few minutes ago, those 10,000 people that are my mentors. You know, I'm grateful that they wrote their books. I'm grateful that you have your podcast. I'm grateful that, you know, because that's, these are labors of love. These are yeah. very seldom profitable business endeavors. Hey, um, and, in, so that's I, right. yeah, and so I want to be a part of that is what it boils down to. It's yeah. also something that I never really saw myself as was kind of a teacher or a mentor on the other side of that equation because I was just too busy learning from everyone else. And now I've reached the point where I realize I have a story to tell and I have uh, knowledge and experience and information to give back. And I've had many people tell me that my story is inspiring to them. And while I never really saw myself as an inspirational person, Mm -hmm. the reality is that if people keep telling you that, then it doesn't really matter how you see yourself. That is who you are. And so I've decided to embrace that and see how I can leave my, you know, how I can leave my mark on the world. If there was one lesson, if you had to go back to your younger self,
0: so let's go back to that childhood. Um, And so one lesson, maybe it's in the book that you would share to kind of, I always like this, you know, it's kind of like you have the post-it note you put on the computer. So you look at it every day, right? What would that advice or quote or insight be um, to that younger Dave?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, man, there's honestly a lot of them, Brian. I think, uh, I think for me, what it would be is just live your life. Put your, put, put your mark on the world like, I'm I'm amazed, you know, once again, I'm 45, so I don't claim to be old and, and wise, but I'm also not young and naive anymore. I'm kind of somewhere in though, I guess that's why they call it middle age, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I've reached this point in my life where I've started to figure out a few things, but I know I don't have everything figured out. And so I look back and I'm just like, look at how many people live their lives and they don't live their lives. They just exist. And they all have regrets back to that end of life. They all have regrets. And, you know, maybe it's a little bit dreamy and cliche, but I really believe that, I mean, there's what, 7 billion people on the planet? What if we all impacted five people's lives? What, what a difference that would make in the world? And so I think once again, we get caught too caught up in the Hollywood version of what success and inspiring others and paying it forward and what those things look like from people that have done them really, really, really well and good for them. Um, but we all think that if we can't be that, then we're then we're nothing. And what I would he, what I'm here to tell my ten year old Dave Menz is there is a lot of people leaving their impact on the world that have impacted me in my life that are somewhere below having a movie written about them. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and the world needs them. The world yeah. needs them. And I, at this point, I'm not suggesting this for other people. For me personally, I now consider it my obligation. And I don't mean that with a negative connotation at all. I mean that in the most sincere way possible. Mm-hmm. I believe that it's a part of why I'm here on Earth is to impact and inspire others, and I want to do that. And if I have some silly laundromat millionaire name that catches people's attention and causes them to listen to me and my story, then okay, I'll embrace that. You know, I I take a lot of hate for that <laughs> that name because it, it comes across as really braggy, and I get that. But I'm like, you know what, I'll. I'll take those arrows. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I have something circled over here and I didn't ask
0: you. And it's really, it's something I've been thinking about a lot. You mentioned you, you know, you went and you worked for the telephone company for many years, right? So you didn't live that, you know, that, that thing you said of, Hey, I'm going to own my own business. Mm -hmm. You decided to make the change and say, Hey, I'm going to do this, but Here's my question. And, and I'm wondering if, if you can pull one thing or, or a couple of things out that you remember from those times. Why did you? So it's one thing to say you're going to change, but then it's another to commit to the change. Why did you decide to commit and say, all right, I, yeah, I can talk in circles about this, but actually create action to do it? Do you remember some of those internal discussions back then? Maybe it was with your wife, but about committing to the change and actually doing it.
1: I think it really, honestly, for me, goes back to the fact that I've always had a even maybe even unreasonable confidence in myself that if I decide to do something, get out of my way. Like there's, you're going to have to kill me to get me to stop. Like it's just my nature. I'm very hot and I'm very cold. And when I decided that, you know, this corporate world wasn't for me, I mean, I had reached the quote unquote pinnacle. I mean, I, I wasn't the president of the company or anything like that. I was like, you know middle middle uh level but I, I mean i had I was making a nice living, I had great benefits, I had six weeks vacation, I mean, we had a nice home, nice cars, you know, took a nice vacations, uh probably upper middle class is what I would describe our life at that point um and and once again, when you come from poverty, it's easy to be like done, you know well yeah. life well lived um and I just woke up one day and said i'm thirty three years old. I've been working here. When I started this thought process, I'd been there roughly thirteen or fourteen years, and I worked there for another three or four years before I left. Um and I just woke up one day and said, this like this isn't the life for me. and i want to do I want to do what I always wanted to do, what I always said I would do. And I looked at my wife, and one of the things I told her on our first date um that she still remembers is I was a single dad at the time when I met my current wife, and uh, I said, I love my daughter more than anything in this world, and I would do anything in the world for her. And someday I'm gonna own my own business. Those were the I, I basically told her those are the two foundational things you need to know about Dave Menz. Um, and, and so when we were starting, I was struggling with this. Uh, you know, I mean, one of the things I think society kind of tells us in life is, well, once you once you have a family and you have a house and you have car payments, it's, you know, it's a little too risky to go try to start a business. Um, and so once again, everybody in my life except for my wife pretty much um, told me it was too risky and not to do it. And honestly, I think it just drove home what people told me in my childhood. Yeah. If you want to see me accomplish something, tell me I can't do it, because because there is nothing <laughs> there's nothing that will yeah. stop me at that point. So I, you know, I, I have a pretty big chip on my shoulder. Uh, I think a lot of for my upbringing things like that. But ultimately, what it's what it boils down to is once I decide to do something, there's really nothing that will stop me. And I always wanted to do it, and I had this aha moment one day about 14 years into corporate America, 13 years in, and I just said what am I doing? Like, this isn't, this isn't my life. And I just, I remember very succinctly looking in the mirror one morning as I'm getting ready for work. And I'm like, you sell out. And I didn't mean that disrespectful to anyone else in the world. I was talking to me, you sell out. Like this isn't what you're here in this world to do. You're here to be a business person uh, and to serve communities. And you have this opportunity. And I remember thinking to myself, I think I was roughly 28 at the time. I remember thinking to myself, like you're, you're barely 30 years old. What are you doing? You got your whole life ahead of you. Um, You know, just because everyone says once you get married and have a couple kids and buy a house and a couple cars, that that's it. You got to shut it down. You can't take any risk. You can't chase your dreams. I just didn't buy that. Yeah. Hey, that was
0: awesome, man. Well, I appreciate you sharing some of those dreams and stories and and insights and and some of those things along your journey today. So thank you so much for joining. And uh, where can everyone find you? If they want to say hello online, where's
1: the best spot? Yeah, first of all, thank you for having me. I appreciate it and I love your show. Uh thank so thank you. you. Keep doing what you're doing, by the way. Um, but yeah, I have a website, laundermatmillionaire.com. It has my podcast, my book um that'll be coming out, like I said, October 2021. You can, you know, find me for my coaching services if you're interested in the laundromat industry there. Um but yeah, I'm a I'm, you know, I'm pretty active on Facebook and on LinkedIn. Um so those are two good places that you can reach out to me too. If you just you can type in my name, but if you just type in laundromat millionaire. Um, my business profiles will come up that way as well. And, uh, you know, I try to try to respond to people if they send me messages and things like that. I have this attitude in life where I'm, a, I'm really big in networking and I always say, I can't have too many friends. There you go. <laughs> well, Dave, I'm glad
0: to call you a friend, hopefully, as we yes. go forward. So I, Absolutely. I appreciate you being on and uh, thanks so much again.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Brian.
0: Well, I hope you all enjoyed that great interview. And thanks again for stopping by the Just Get Started podcast. Uh, Grateful to have you here. And if I could just make one quick ask before you run along on your day. You know, I've grown this podcast organically over the last three plus years. And it's from the great listeners that pick up, you know, a quote or a key learning or just enjoy the entertainment of the podcast and they share it out to their audience. They leave a review on Apple Podcasts, whatever it is. Um, and I'd ask that for you as well. If you've made it to this point and are listening in, um, a lot of the podcast uh, platforms that you listen on have a share button right there where you can share it out to your audience on various platforms. So I would be so appreciative if you wouldn't mind taking a quick second to do that, um, if you really enjoyed this episode. So thanks again. i happy to connect online. I always love to meet new people. So if you want to go to my website, Brianondraco.com or connect with me. I'm at Brian on Draco, basically everywhere on Instagram, Twitter, even clubhouse, that new app that's out there. Uh, you name it. So, uh, follow me online and uh, certainly look forward to connecting further. I hope y'all have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care.